You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Great, well, thank you very much for coming. Um, I don't know if any of you have been to ODI, the Overseas Development Institute in London, but we specialize in long, uncomfortable spaces. <laughs> so we had an office where we had a meeting just like this, and then we moved office, and we just created another space just like this. So we're just, it must be in our DNA. So I hope the people at the back can feel involved in everything that's going on and that you can hear us. Um, so thank you all very much for coming. Um, we're now um, one year into developing our work on gender norms and the Align Initiative, which is a program funded by the Gates Foundation, uh, focusing on advancing learning and innovation on gender norms. Um, we've, uh, we've got our digital platform up and going. Um, we've uh, just finished a round of small funding, um, a funding call, small funding for innovation on uh, understanding gender norms. Um, and we have, within our platform, started to develop curated areas uh, which uh, are topic specific, but we invite experts to guide the reader through gender norm change in that particular topic. Um, and we are also having a discussion area um, on the platform, Project Spotlights, and today we'll be focusing on, on some of the uh, programs and learning. <coughs> um, so the initiative um, from the Gates Funda Foundation was very much part of their interest in understanding how norms change, uh, particularly social norms, um, and we have a focus on gender norms, which brings in the issue of power and power uh, relations. So our work in Align focuses on the attitudes, behaviours, practices and valuing around sex and gender. We feel it's very important because one can change one's own beliefs but not necessarily be allowed to act on them. It depends on the context in which you're living. You can change your behaviour. For example, you might restrain yourself from an act of violence but you still value women less than men and girls less than boys in multiple areas and, and capabilities. So the whole package around norm change <coughs> involves sustainable and committed change where we value the sexes equally and we don't hold power <coughs> over others just because of their sex, rather we hold power over ourselves and our choices and our efficacy in a context where opportunities are equal. This is what norm change means. It requires individual and community action alongside institutional accountability and legal standards. So Align is developing and sharing knowledge on how this type of fundamental <coughs> change and advancement in relations between people and changed behaviors and changed values actually happens. From community-based <coughs> initiatives to social movements to legal reforms, recognizing there's no magic bullet but a great deal of learning to share. So today we are going to learn from our mini partners on their learning and innovation on gender norm change. I think we have six uh, project spotlights to share with you and then we'll be having a discussion. Patty is, <coughs> I'm gonna hand over completely to Patty and sit in the audience. Um, I just point you to the platform and I think you'll get pointed to it again at the end. So please do visit the platform. Um, and watch it grow and contribute to it. Uh, you can, you're welcome to share your ideas 
your projects with us um, and to see what other work is developing um, on the platform. So I'll hand over to Patty, who can introduce herself and is kindly going to chair this whole event for us. Um, thank you. And this is Caroline Harper. I don't oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I introduce myself. I'm really sorry. I'm Caroline Harper. I'm the head of uh, uh, the Gender and Inclusion Program at ODI, and I manage this program of work um, amongst other programs of work on gender. But this is one of the ones that I'm really interested in. Um, I'm an anthropologist by training, so I have an interest in how <coughs> culture shifts, how norms shift, and how we use language around these, uh, these tricky areas. Thanks. Good afternoon, everyone. I am really excited to be here. We have an amazing panel, and my great thanks to Caroline, Rachel, everybody for putting this together and coming and making this possible. Our panelists have worked at the forefront of assessing and moving norms, and this is not easy. Um, the, the definition that um, people sometimes use for <coughs> norms is typical and appropriate behaviors. And that's a way to introduce people into the world of gender norms, but it's not a very helpful definition for the scholars who are working every day with these norms, trying to assess them, trying to understand them. They're contextual, they're fluid, they move forward, they move backwards. And to put your finger on them and say this is what they are, and then they shift again on you. It's challenging. It, it helps us understand why isn't development going the way it's intended. And we're under pressure to make social science simple and understandable and useful for policy. But when it comes to gender norms, we may do more justice by showing how challenging it is for people to act on the goals they have for themselves because of these expectations of how men and women are supposed to conduct their lives and interact. Um, this is a definition of social norms that's 20 years old now, but I come back to it because I find it so useful. Social norms govern social relations. They ex establish expectations as to how we are to act in our everyday affairs. They structure social interaction in ways that allow social actors to gain the benefits of joint activity. And they determine in significant ways the distribution <coughs> of the benefits of social life. So Caroline has put forward a vision where those opportunities are equal and we value the sexes equally. But we have these normative frameworks that put a lot of pressure on us to think very differently about what men and what women ought to do. Um, I am involved currently in a project called Genovate. It's a large collaboration within the Centers for International Agricultural Research, which are agricultural research centers around the global south. We're looking at questions of why aren't women picking up and testing, learning about, adopting, adapting new agricultural practices, new agricultural technologies that could greatly improve their productivity and profits. Why aren't women uh, embracing these opportunities in the same way as men? 
Um, and to look at these questions, we've gone to 137 villages spanning 26 countries. The field work took place between 2014 and 2016. And our approach was guided by three tenets that I don't have time to discuss today, but I'll flag them for you. <coughs> a deep concern for context, a deep concern for comparison and being able to draw wider lessons, and also the collaborative, the collaborative among the researchers, the collaborative in giving primacy to learning from local men and women about their experiences, about their views of agricultural innovation processes in their localities. Um, and uh, I'm just going to give you one small taste of Genovate. And this is a complex slide, so I'll just, not, I, I can't explain it all. But at the end of our panel, you're going to have an opportunity. We're going to spread around the room our, all of the panelists. And you can rotate amongst us and ask questions. And I'm happy to answer any questions on this slide. But basically, it's from NVivo, which is a social science software. And I analyzed the extent to which people talked about its stressful ways when they were discussing a vignette. And this vignette covered three different couples. And one of the couples was our modern couple. And this modern couple, the wife was a very successful trader, and the husband was a farmer doing well, but also helping around the house. And this couple sparked the most disparaging remarks um, you could imagine. Um, and when I looked at 43 case studies uh, that span mostly South Asia, but also Morocco and Ethiopia, it was just comments after comments saying that such a couple would be inconceivable. Um, they said that in Morocco, in a village, a young woman suggested that people would think the wife's a witch who had cast the spell on her husband so that he yields to her. And the most disparaging marks, remarks actually went to the husband. Um, and we gave this couple local names. Um, so people would call Ali, and this is a village in Afghanistan, a spineless person. If Aisha, his wife, had, has a husband, why would she need to go to the market? If the purpose is selling crops in the market, why wouldn't she ask her husband to sell the crops? So these are roles that are inconceivable, this modern couple. And it would just evoke so much stress across the testimony. But at the same time, in that same village in Afghanistan, poor women explained that, you know, you would find a woman sometimes selling homemade items like dairy products or crafts. So norms bend to accommodate people's lived realities. And in some communities, these norms don't speak to most people's lived realities. And I'm excited about the panel today because they're working out in the field and showing this disjuncture and, and demonstrating opportunities for moving these sticky norms um, and measuring these and pushing um, with the knowledge they have about what works on the ground to shift mindsets. Um, and we're really lucky. We have panelists from seven different countries um, Lori Michelle, co-director, Raising Voices, will start. Uh, then we're going to turn, let me just make sure I get this right, yes, to Hadisa um, Haruna Uske. And Hadisa comes from Nigeria. She's the gender team lead for Girls Connect Nigeria, the Girl Effect. 
Then we're going to go to Uthma Yabiti, Ethiopia researcher and uptake coordinator for gender and adolescence with global evidence or GAGE. Um, and then we go to Akie Tikat. And Akie comes from the Netherlands, and she is the research manor, manager for Aftatune. Um, and then we move to Hadisa Haruna, no, I already said that. I got this out of order, I'm sorry. Our, um, then Christina Fungwari. Christina is coming from Zimbabwe, and she is with, she's the International Project Manager <coughs> and Power Project ActionAid International. And finally, Zoe Carlotide will discuss uh, U Report, World Association of Girl Guides and Girl Scouts. She's been really busy this week, <laughs> and she's coming to us from London. They're going to talk briefly, but you are going to have an opportunity to interact with all of us um, at the end of the panel. So let's start with Lori. Nice to see all of you, even way back there. So hopefully, can everybody hear me okay? <coughs> no? I'm hearing a <coughs> shake of the heads. Okay, I'll also try to project. Um, so just let, just raise your hand if it's ceiling like you can't really hear. But um, nice to see everybody. Um, as Patty said, I'm Lori Michaud, and one of the co-directors at Raising Voices. And we are <coughs> based in Kampala, Uganda. Um, and so what's going to happen is just a really five-minute short little snapshot of um, some of the work that we do and just trying to pull out some things that might be um, a little bit interesting, hopefully. We'll see. Um, so, you know, it's always good to start on a good note. And our good note is that, you know, over the last few years at Raising Voices, what we found is that violence actually is preventable, that we didn't actually know when we started our work many years ago. We've been working in Uganda for about 20 years. We didn't really know if it's preventable, and can we actually do it? And if we can, does it take generations, or does it take a reasonable amount of time? And what we actually found is that we were able to prevent violence against women, and it did happen within kind of regular project time frames. And this is really around changing kind of the, the expectations, the norms, um, how people relate with each other in communities. So I'm gonna share a little bit about that. So how do we know it was successful? So we did a randomized control trial with London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and McBerry University, as well as our um, partner organization called the Center for Domestic Violence Prevention. And um, we did an intensive um, work over three years, a little bit more than three years, in Kampala in the communities. And we were able to reduce um, physical violence um, by um, intimate partners for women um, by 52%. And there's many, many other findings in the study. We were able to really shift things around gender norms, around um, how people um, sort of saw <coughs> women's roles and men's roles, and as you were saying, Caroline, around um, power and the power dynamics between people. Um, as well as HIV risk behaviors. And there's lots of papers now published on the SASA study, so if you're interested in learning more, um, there is quite a bit out there on that. Um, 
And so what we did is we used what's um, Raising Voices developed in, um, a few years back now, an approach called SASA. And SASA is a Kiswahili word that means now. And um, it's sort of our kind of rallying cry for all of us that we can't just kind of sit back and hope for the best, that we really got to get out there and really try to like do things now. Because the situation for women is really, um, is really dying in very many communities. And so rather than kind of taking a reactive stance around services and, and, and um, service delivery, which is also really important, but really how can we stop it? How can we work at the root and really unpack what's happening between not just men and women at an individual level, but also at a more systemic level? And so SASA is a community mobilization approach that works over time in communities with men and women, but not just people who would um, you would think would say, oh, I've experienced violence or I might be using violence, but it's really a whole community approach. So looking, you might be familiar with the ecological model and thinking about how <coughs> at every level, so from the individual to the family to the community and to the society, like how the dynamics between different people and different groups really sets the stage. Again, exactly what Caroline was saying is that you know if one person kind of feels like they can change, but they don't have a supportive environment to do that, it's not really possible. And so with SASA, it's actually trying to change at the population level, and that's where the kind of study came in. So those were not with participants in a program that had direct relation or, or interface with SASA, but actually really trying to change the norms within the community that um, perpetuate violence against women. So I just pulled out sort of one um, sort of interesting fact that we were really surprised at. Um, much of SASA um, at the beginning, um, and SASA kind of grew out of many years of our work in communities, but we really thought that, you know, a, a sort of linchpin in changing uh, the gender dynamics and gender norms within communities was working on gender roles at the household level. Yeah, I think that that's kind of conventional wisdom um, and that a lot of programs, we did that for a really long time and we thought, okay, if things can change, if, if roles can be more equitable at a household level, then that will sort of really make change and women and men will, the power differential will be changed. And actually what we found is that was not right <laughs> in our experience. What we found is that actually created a lot of problems and a lot of tensions between <coughs> men and women. And so what we were saying is okay, like, you know, it was coming down to kind of nitty gritty pettiness almost. And I think we can all think about it with our own partners sometimes, right? Like I did the dishes yesterday, did you do them today, right? Like it, it got to this point where it was like, it was causing a lot of tensions and um, and pe pitting people against each other rather than bringing them together. And so actually midstream within SASA, what we did is say, this isn't working. This is like not helping. This is not what we intended. People are sort of butting heads and feeling like they're not, they, they are not on the same side and not together, and how do we switch that dynamic? And one of the things that we try to do within SASA is really try to focus on some of the sort of universal needs that we all have around feeling loved, feeling respected, and feeling valued as people. And once we started changing the dialogue and helping couples and men and women communicate about what they felt like um, they really wanted in a relationship around those kind of needs that we all have, 
then things started really shifting and people felt like I actually have the power to do something. I can be, um, I, can, I can show that I value my partner in a different way and, and if I'm showing her that perhaps through a shift in household gender roles but perhaps in lots of other ways then that will create a better relationship between us. And so rather than having it be a power struggle, it became kind of the, the couple had power between each other and with each other. And so that was kind of a really fundamental shift for us that changed our programming actually a lot. Um, because as I said, for years we had been thinking it was the other way around. So that's just sort of like one little snippet that we learned within um, um, Sasa. And you know, I guess now what we're what we're trying to figure out and experiment is the sustainability question, right? Is that okay if within the span of the you know three and a half years that we did this programming? Can what is the stickiness of those norms that have changed? Clearly, in these communities, there's a different role. Like the uh, as Patty was saying, this sort of modern man and modern woman role. Like if those are sort of new normals, can they stick? And how? what needs to happen um, structurally within a community and sustain support within a community so that the norms that we are able to shift and people really take on, how do they continue sticking? So that's a question that we are currently exploring and really putting a lot of energy into. And so I imagine many of you in the room working on norms are doing the same thing. So I will leave it there. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <coughs> okay, thank you. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Hadiza and I'm from Nigeria. I work with Get Effect. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, so I'm going to spotlight on a program that we are implementing in Nigeria called Girls Connect. Um, so what's Girls Connect? Girls Connect is a digital platform that delivers um, personalized experiences for girls um, through um, on-demand content and on-demand conversation. So what does that mean? So basically through any mobile phone, a girl calls and she listens to entertaining, educating stories and she follows four characters just like her. So these four characters are girls who are living in Nigeria, living in the communities, and they're facing issues around human trafficking, early marriage, economic empowerment, violence against girls issues. And through these stories, girls are able to follow the girls through the challenges that they face and together learn lessons with them. Then at the end of the line, girls are connected to a real-life role model who helps them make sense of the lessons they have learned in the stories and kind of like has a conversation with them. Um, Girls Connect is piloted in Nigeria, as I said, and it's targeted to girls 14 to 16 year olds in um, states in Nigeria. So what have we learned um, worked over the years since we've been piloting Girls Connect? So we all know that media is really key in you know, shaping public discourse and pushing out information. And one of the things that we asked ourselves when we started Girls Connect was, how do we reach a hard to reach demographic? Because in Nigeria, Adolescent girls are hard to reach because of limited mobility <coughs> and restrictions around them. 
And the other thing that we were thinking of is what are the opportunities that we can leverage. So for instance, in Nigeria, mobile penetration is really, really high. It's one of the highest in sub-Saharan Africa. And so we're thinking, girls do not always come out. How can we get to them in their homes, in their houses, and give them information that they need? And so one of the things that we did was we we um, delivered Girls Connect through a basic IVR line. So with any basic phone, the girl can get that information that she needs. And in, in terms of using media and communication, one of the things that we learned works is when you are passing message to your demographic, it's really important that you, you have a call to action because the call to action is what inspires and pushes and encourages practice and behavior change and that shift <coughs> and the knowledge and also it um, encourages people you know, in the communities and families, for instance, in Girls Connect, for them to start having conversations with their brothers, their sisters, and their families around. Um, the other thing that we found um, that works for adolescent girls is role model. Um, having positive role models that they can look up to in your messaging when you're working through communications or mass media, having role models that girls can um, look up to is really important. But one of the things that we found that is critical in the use of role models is that not only should these role models be inspirational, but they should also be relatable. So it should be role models that girls can relate to, the girls can see themselves in, the girls can see in their communities and in the context of whatever place that you're working in. It's something that also helps girls to um, um, internalize the message that you are um, passing. Um, with, e with everything, there are things that work, there are things that do not work. Some of the things that we have found that hasn't worked for us when using mass communication, because as much as it can spur and shape the knowledge that you want, there can also be backlash. And one of the things that we've found that doesn't work in, in Nigeria, where I come from, is that using words such as rights, empowerment, equality, when you're pushing information, <coughs> when you're working in the communities. Because we've found that these, these words, words like this, are okay for um, um, forums such as CSW, and when you're talking to you know fellow um, um, converts and all that, but when you're working in the communities, immediately you say those kind of words, people's, people's defenses just rise automatically. And so instead, what we have done is that we've, we switch the narrative and instead we say what are the benefits to the rise and the empowerment. So instead we say, if you empower a girl or you allow her to go to school, she's better able to read the expiry date on a drug, for instance. Mm -hmm. And that helps her to know when the drug is um, expired and not to take it. Or that helps her to help her family or to give back to the society. So the benefits of whatever it is that we're trying to push is what um, helps <coughs> in the messaging. Um, the other thing that we've found that does not work is when you exclude key gatekeepers in the communities that you're working in. So specifically excluding gatekeepers like religious leaders, traditional leaders in the communities where I work. Because in Nigeria, um, especially in the northern part of Nigeria, um, where Girls Connect started its pilot, it's a very conservative society. And these gatekeepers are the ones who frame the narrative around girls. And so excluding them, it's really not helpful, um, to be honest. And so one of the things that is really important that you do is that you work with these gatekeepers. There will always be gatekeepers who will be in support of positive and uh, pushing negative gender norms. And of course, you always find those that are against it. And so one of the things that we have done is that, like we all know, you know, you do your power mapping and everything to find out the positive gatekeepers and you work along with them. For instance, in Girls Connect, it has really helped us because one of the things that has um, we have found in, in Nigeria is that um, there's always a negative perception around a mobile phone in the hands of a girl because what the belief is that once a girl has access to information, then she has a tendency to just 
know everything and possibly make bad choices. So there's always that restriction in the country that I come from. But working with these gatekeepers has always helped to make sure that they kind of like change that narrative around the girls' use to um, mobile technology. Um, and I think the other thing, just like I said, you know, community mobilization, you know, um, it's really key. Um, we found out for Girls Connect, we found out that parents are beginning to loan their phones to girls for those that do not have. Parents are opening their homes for other girls to come in and for them to listen in groups and all that. So it's really important that you do your community advocacy and everything um, um, in the communities. Um, in terms of like lessons, some of the lessons that we have learned, um, just quickly I'll talk about one, um, is taking a human-centered you know, approach to your design. What do I mean by that? And um, one of the things that we have done in Get Effect is that we always work with the girl from the very beginning. So the girl is at the beginning of the program design, she's at the beginning of everything that we do, the outcomes and everything that we do, and right to the middle and to the end. And so taking a human-centered design always ensures that you have your target group from the very beginning and you're designing for them because we found that most often times as experts, we, we, we know it and we sit in our rooms and air condition and all that and we design programs and we go to the communities and we say here this is a program that we should implement in your communities. It doesn't always work but when you involve the community people and you get them involved from the very beginning, it's, you know, it's <coughs> something that is really, really helpful. Um, there's this brief example that I would like to cite. Um, so for instance, for Girls Connect, one of the things that we were thinking of was there's a high penetration of mobile access, like I said, in Nigeria, but not all girls have smartphones. So how do we design something that, that, needs, to, that needs technology to work, but using a basic phone? And it was together with girls that we decided that using an IVR line was the best way. So with any basic feature phone, it doesn't have to be a smartphone, any basic feature phone, a girl is able to listen to the stories um, and connect to the role models. And again, it was through the human-centered design and working with girls that we found out that the best way for girls felt in Nigeria that the best way for them to listen and to learn is to entertaining stories because drama is big in Nigeria, stories is really big in Nigeria. Um, our Nollywood, uh, Nollywood industry is like one of the highest um, after Bollywood. So drama is really big in Nigeria and it was through talking to girls and taking that human-centered um, approach that we're able to get insights and design Girls Connect um, for girls. And I think lastly, the other thing that we learned was that when you are taking a human-centered approach, it's really important that you design for the now, not for the future. We are always thinking about sustainability and you know, 10 years from now we want programs to live beyond us and all that, which is really good. But if you don't design for the now, where the girl is now, mm -hmm. it will not help her because you're designing for a girl who is like 10 years. Mm -hmm. So designing for her, for her situation now, where she is at now, her challenges and her issues now, that's really helpful and that's something that we found that works for Girls Connect. Thank you. Um, uh, really for inviting me to, to make just uh, in a very sh uh, short uh, s uh, speech here. Um, as you see, my name is Wartan Abdullah. I'm a Fitopia Research and uh, Aptech Coordinator for Gate Research. 
Uh, I just want to focus one specific issue, education, uh, which is one of the, 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 the key uh, uh, um, domains of uh, gauge uh, research uh, as a, an important entry point in, in bringing change related to social norms. Uh, uh, education uh, policies and the curriculum uh, ha have been promoted in Ethiopia uh, in order to uh, really increase um, knowledge of rights and uh, uh, fight for achieving uh, these rights. Uh, at the school level, um, Ethiopia have been establishing a number of uh, uh, school level structures, at least in principle. Uh, for example, uh, we have uh, the Parent Students Teacher um, Association at the school level, which is aimed at increasing um, enrollments of girls by campaigning um, for this. Uh, but however, there is um, an enshrining um, a very top-down school management system, uh, particularly focusing on school disciplining approaches instead of really trying to, to, to expand um, and increase the rights of students in general and of girls in particular. We have also uh, the one to five uh, development group in school, which is also um, aimed at increasing students' participation in learning and also supporting uh, slow learners to catch up educationally and the girls are often perceived to be in this category. Uh, girls clubs, oh no, I'm just reading for me. Um, um, girls clubs and other school clubs are also expected to play very key roles in really um, helping to ensure the rights of girls at school level. Uh, in some cases, uh, the girls clubs really play an important role in awareness raising creation in relation to child marriage, uh, FGMC, HIV prevention, and have included um, reporting structures as well, uh, which is re really very important, particularly when um, the uh, different levels of government uh, bodies uh, want to, ta to take actions, for example, on uh, FGMC then the school club's role is very, very important. As uh, my colleague also raised, um, these school uh, level structures are particularly led by uh, female uh, teachers who are considered to be um, not only uh, in reporting, for example, sexual assault to the police and to the justice office, but at the same time, uh, the government use uh, these female teachers as um, a role model uh, to encourage girls really uh, to have better future, better expectations and aspirations. Um, uh, despite this, uh, however, our research, particularly the GAGE research, showed that wherever NGO resources and the curriculum materials uh, are available, uh, they can be much more effective. Uh, given that there is a very limited government resourcing to, to support this change. Uh, at the curriculum level, um, we have a civic education for students above um, grade five, 
uh, which is uh, really uh, actually integrated into the curriculum. And this um, civic education has greatly contributed in helping the children, students, to talk about their rights. However, in practice, what we are seeing is that there is an, a, a non-linear direction of norm changes. Five years ago, um, uh, there was more space for youth participation and the voice at school level and also at the community level, but this has been uh, declining more recently. Uh, for example, five years ago, when I was just working for another organization, <coughs> students were actually invited um, to comment on district level plans and the budget. Uh, in particular, the school parliament members were, were very, very active. Um, however, our uh, baseline, baseline research now indicated that such structures have become less active over time, and uh, there are very um, uh, few of them are really now starting to, to, to go to the district level uh, to provide uh, their own suggestions and comments. Uh, and according to our findings, schools do not have really um, a robust child protection systems in place for students to report um, right violations. Uh, while schools are seeking through garbage clubs uh, and also other school-based clubs to shift conservative norms related to child marriage, it is uh, still the case that in the absence of adequate awareness that norms around the <coughs> desirable age of marriage persists in the community. In some of the communities we visit, uh, girls are considered as, for example, have to which means that undesirable or unmarriageable when they reach around the age of 16. And the girls are feel ashamed if they are insulted in such a way and may drop out intentionally in order to secure a marriage partner. Uh, and we also found out that access to technology has already also um, reported in, in, in Nigeria. Uh, access to technology within the school context is having a mixed effect. On the one hand, uh, male students uh, in particular talked about using phones and the internet to access uh, pornographic materials. On the other hand, access to telephone and the internet increases connectivity uh, and may contribute to breaking down isolation among young people. It also provides opportunities to get access to information that may help to break down taboos around sensitive topics such as sexual and reproductive health. Uh, saying this, just let me uh, briefly um, uh, say something about uh, the policy implications <coughs> and then wrap up. Uh, targets uh, reach child marriage and HTPs are very, very important but uh, needs to understand the underlying gender discriminatory practices and the norms and the context-specific trajectories uh, to tailor intervention strategies. School-based violence in its multiple forms require urgent <coughs> attention, including functioning, reporting, and redress systems. 
We need to consider embedding, uh, embedding opportunities for government support and agency, including strengthening school clubs, uh, students, teacher, parent associations, uh, and also to involve the communities to really bring positive and normal change. Thank you very much. And just to say, uh, working from the GAGE program, here's the link um, to GAGE. We didn't get to that slide, but um, you can learn more online. I've also been asked to speak about the role of education while we're trying to shift gender norms. I definitely don't have the silver bullet, but I'm going to share a few experiences and lessons learned over the years. Uh, maybe I'll just start with um, the organization that I work for and um, the approach that we use, and then I'll shift towards the gender norm shifts. Um, I work for Ausbildung International. We're based in Amsterdam, and um, we work in 109 countries. We don't implement programs ourselves, but we uh, work through partner organizations, which can be ministries of education, uh, international organizations, teacher training institutes, local uh, grassroots organizations, etc. And um, they're all interested in making education um, better. That's basically what, why they come uh, to us, and um, they want to expand education um, towards um, life, more life skills based, um, like financial education based, civic education uh, based as well, um, through active learning methods, and that's basically what we what we try and offer uh, to them. Now, I think I think I wrote that somewhere as well. Tweet takeaway: How do we want to do this? Yeah, exactly. How do we want to shift these gender norms? And again, this is definitely not the solution to all of our problems. But I think if we look at uh, content of lesson plans, basically, we look at training and we look at doing good research, um, that's probably a good start. So um, what we provide is content to um, all of these partners, over 200 partners worldwide, um, that want to improve their education um, through life skills and financial education. And um, we, the content basically looks at um, who am I, um, what do I want to do in life, what do I like to do, what am I good at, um, where do I want to go towards a, a little bit of future orientation and planning, uh, what are my rights and my responsibilities, and then from there it goes on towards um, making that plan, saving, uh, resources, not just money, but also other resources, um, planning and budgeting, and uh, spending wisely, and then from there it goes on to um, enterprise. So children, depending on the age, uh, we work from early childhood up to early 20s, um, they uh, start their own enterprises, or well, for the early childhood we don't expect them to start their own enterprise, but they organize a fair or something like that. Um, so that's that's the content generally. Um, the training, um, well, the training is super important, right? We train teachers worldwide, teachers and educators also outside of the uh, formal education system um, to use active learning methods and to make children 
more active in the classroom through games and activities and exercises. Um, and children really, really like that um, when they're, especially when they're used to just being talked to uh, most most time of the day. And we do research to improve our programs and to understand how education worldwide can be improved better. So we do randomized control trials and all of the, the, the big studies, but also really just looking with our partners to see what the challenges are. And there are many challenges. Um, just to name a few is that it's uh, programs are not always contextualized enough. Um, and especially programs do not always reach the most vulnerable children. Um, which is a, well, a problem that I'm personally taking very seriously and that I really like to work on uh, much more. The studies that we've done, they show that these programs really impact uh, the, avenue, like the, the outcomes of the children and it also, um, these programs that focus on diversity and gender can also, is it hard to hear? Yes. You can't hear? No. Oh, is it on? Closer. Yeah, closer. closer. So through the research that we do, um, we see that the social and financial education programs are effective and they also have really great uh, results on <coughs> educational outcomes and so teachers are using their methodologies and the children are more engaged in the classroom. So those are really nice nice outcomes. We also see that um, social financial education has a positive influ uh, influence on a shift in gender norms. Children are becoming more uh, positive towards um, women, women and girls participation, etc. Um, but obviously it, there is, uh, we, we need to do specific work to make um, this better and work to make this work better for uh, for girls and boys to create that um, real shift in, in in gender norms. And so what we've done again, I think the same applies for um, not just general education, but also to create that shift in gender norms. We again need to look at content, at training, and at doing good research. So basically, um, if we want to. Uh, make that shift happen, <coughs> I think a good start is to have um, contextualized materials in the classroom. So class, classes that really focus on um, case studies in which also girls um, have good ideas or um, gender, the topic of gender comes back in every subject um, to sort of promote that girls can do what boys can do and boys can do what girls can do and they really promote the positivity, like the positive masculinity as well um, rather than the negative um, topics. I think that really, that's really powerful. And for the training, what we do is we really focus on the gender sensitive um, teaching in the classroom and in the clubs and wherever education is provided. Um, because what, 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 we've, what we've seen is that teachers generally are not always aware of the fact that they ask specific questions to girls and specific questions to gr uh, boys, um, but when we observe them and later uh, feedback, they, they often do that, right? Like, well, girls, what do you think? Or boys, what do you think? Um, to, to, I think teachers have a really important role to, um, to shift those norms as well. Um, and just to close off with a few thoughts, uh, thoughts about research. 
Um, what we've seen is that it's helpful to start young. Um, when you want to change behavior, when you want to change attitudes, <coughs> it's helpful to start with <coughs> young children. And speaking of attitudes versus behavior, often we want to change attitudes or norms. Um, but what we've seen in Rwanda is that behavior can sometimes be easier to change than attitudes, and maybe the attitudes can follow after. So maybe that's also a way of how to look at this. What we've seen in Rwanda is we uh, worked on gender norms through clubs. Um, so those were children that were in school, but the gender, <coughs> gender norms uh, classes were provided in after school uh, clubs. And after a few months of the clubs, the boys started, on take, take, started taking on um, domestic work that was usually done by girls to make the girls um, have more time to study. Um, so that was really great. After a few months, um, I think someone mentioned it, um, it doesn't have to take years and years and years of programming to achieve something like that, which, which is really powerful, a really good impact after uh, such a short time. Um, I think everybody says it, and not everyone do, does it, but I just heard Girl Effect doing it, is start with the girl, right? Start with the girl, start with the boy, and, and go from there, see what they need. And um, yeah, really ask them uh, what works best for them. Um, it's definitely not always uh, done. And again, everyone says it, really try to understand the context um, that you're working in. I like the uh, ecological, model, uh, the reference to that, that's a really helpful model to see what the girl needs, what their immediate, what, or the boy needs, what children needs, what their immediate environment needs, and what the, the bigger society around them uh, can do for it. Um, yeah, those are just a few thoughts. Thanks. Thank Okay, thank you. So this is Christina Mwangwari, and she's coming to us from Zimbabwe, and she is with um, Power Project of ActionAid International. opportunity to share with you our experiences on a Friday afternoon I know uh, maybe uh, there's quite a lot of interest because usually some people will be doing other things so it's really great that you are supporting us as well to share our experiences so um, the power project is a project being done by Action Aid International and the project is being implemented in four countries uh, power means promoting opportunities for women's empowerment and rights and it's in Ghana, Rwanda, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. 
The focus of the project is on uh, climate resilient sustainable agriculture, unpaid care work, violence against women and girls, and uh, how these three things are actually um, intersecting with each other. So just to give a bit of an introduction, I mean, we all know that uh, gender inequality is really deeply rooted in our social norms and practices, and it's not one of the easiest things to, to change. So this is like um, part of the challenge with the work that we are doing. Uh, we do find that there's quite a number of challenges, and a lot of gender inequalities around women's economic empowerment or care work is actually seen as like normal, and even violence against women sometimes is normalized <coughs> and seen as something that is normal, so it shouldn't be really questioned or challenged. And uh, so um, we also look at the gender division of labor, which is really seen as something like a, a given that uh, maybe uh, it's the responsibility of women and uh, to do some roles and men to do certain roles. And uh, sometimes it is uh, not as easy also to challenge that some of these roles and really show that these are not really uh, like predetermined or, or something that cannot be changed. And uh, what women ha are doing actually is seen as less important and maybe not highly valued and almost invisible. And the other major challenge that we see is that states do not prioritize allocating resources either to address the social norms or to address the challenges that are emerging from um, inequalities. As Action Aid, we have uh, methodologies that we work with, and these include uh, or, or what uh, is known as reflection action where communities come together and discuss certain issues. And we do have a feminist um, intersectional analysis and we focus on um, a human rights-based approach where we are analyzing the issues of power, the issues of uh, um, how uh, women can work together with others and challenge certain uh, existing forms of power. And we do have um, like our approach when we go into the communities because we're really working with um, women in uh, rural women farmers and we work with 21,000 uh, rural women farmers in the four countries, and the women are organized into groups of 30 women. So when we go into the communities, these are rural communities primarily working on farming, and we sort of like, to make it easier for people to understand what we're really talking about, we work with role playing, uh, we do uh, uh, spousal meetings in the communities, cooking competitions, for example, in Ghana and Bangladesh, we've used those just to challenge that men actually cannot, cannot cook uh, so that at least people can understand that actually it's not like there's something in the woman that makes them able to cook, anyone can do it. And then we have photo exhibitions where we show images of men and boys doing uh, care work or doing other activities that are, not, uh, that are really seen as primarily women's roles. And we also do community and state sensitization. And I'll speak a little bit more about um, time diaries. So in our work, we uh, work on unpaid care work. And part of our, in terms of the norms is that maybe women are the ones primarily responsible for care work. And what we do in terms of this, we have a time diary too that we is filled in by both men and women in communities. And in the community, as they're sitting, they discuss with each other like uh, what, they, what is coming up from their 24-hour use of time. And this is very interesting at community level. For example, we see that um, they recognize that actually maybe they're spending six hours per day doing maybe fetching water and firewood. And some men actually acknowledge it just from the time there is that actually I spent five hours most of my time, five hours actually I do nothing or just walk around and reach people in the village. 
So that comes like a realization that actually there's something about my time. And we may sometimes also acknowledge that actually I didn't realize I was doing so much work and I was spending so much um, time on unpaid care. So this is uh, a woman trying filling in the time diary. And um, just beside them, um, this is a, a different committee, this is in Ghana. But those um, people, the, the, the couple that you see there is in, in Rwanda. And they were uh, supported with a water harvesting technology, a water tank there, as part of the redistribution of the paid care work intervention. And what we see, because women are coming into groups discussing the issues, discussing with the men in the household, we see the men there um, washing also the clothes. This looks very normal maybe to some people, but in most of these communities, and even where I come from, it's not really like the norm for the men to sit down and wash even with their, and it's not like these people were pausing for, for the photo. <laughs> they were just seen by the project officer doing what they were doing in their community, and they just said, can I also take a picture of you? So these are some of the changes that are, are happening. Uh, we, we, as our, the picture was from Rwanda, but uh, just that small quotation there is from another man from Pakistan. <coughs> now I'm not feeling shy to wash or iron clothes of the whole family, which is culturally purely uh, women's responsibility. So we see that uh, although the contexts are different, the countries are different, in terms of changing social norms that is happening. And I've spoken a bit more about mobilization and organization of women before. And what we see as I was discussing is that women come together in the, in the groups, they speak about the issues that affect them, whether it's climate change, whether it's violence against women, and um, decide as a group to approach traditional leaders. This is not uh, something that is common because some of the women didn't even know their neighbors uh, before. They would just be in the same village. Maybe they meet at the water point, but they don't really talk to each other or discuss any of the issues. But now because of the project, they're able to come together, discuss and say, what are we going to do about this? Let's come together. Who can we approach? And they're sharing ideas, and then they approach um, certain authorities to deal with the issues. So we find that in some countries, uh, they've approached uh, what is called the Union Parishad, for example, in Bangladesh. They've uh, approached the district assemblies for water in, in Ghana. They've also approached like, um, leaders in the cells in Rwanda. So they go to the leaders and say, please, can we have uh, safe drinking water in this village? Can we have um, access to seeds and fertilizers in, in this village? So that is part of uh, what uh, it is doing. And we have also recognized that in order to shape some of the norms, we need also to speak to capacity building, which really is related to economic empowerment and how people are able to access resources to enable them to negotiate either within with their spouses, with the state, with other community members or other actors like private sector in the community. So climate resilience sustainable agriculture that we train them on helps them to be able to market their own, uh, to produce their own food, to sell it, and to get an income and also to access markets. And that helps to negotiate and also reduces some of the violence, not in a direct way, but just by being economically empowered. The man also kind of changes and begins to respect that this is someone who has something and the negotiations are on a different uh, scale. So I've just mentioned already a bit about the, uh, the state's role in redistributing unpaid care work. And this is a sensitization meeting in, in Pakistan and how the state has been able to, to work on that. We've also seen that the Rwanda government um, 
made a commitment just after, um, because what we also do is to do research on unpaid care work and other related issues. And as a result of the statistics that are coming out from the term diaries and the engagement, the Rwanda government committed to sort of like have, um, include some of the issues that women were, were, were requesting in their, in their annual, district annual budgets. So this is something that can, that worked really well because the government was sensitized, it was engaged and it sort of like made uh, commitments and also even commitments to reduce the distance uh, that women have to fetch water, but also um, to commit themselves to have some interventions to reduce uh, the time that women have to spend on firewood. And local authorities come in to support maybe women, women's groups with land, women's groups with whatever kind of demands that they have, and then they um, able to negotiate. And then the other thing that I wanted to, to say is that um, women have also been able to know more about their rights. So they've been able to challenge the inheritance issues, which are a very big issue because when their spouses die, they're not able to access land. But because of the group that they're in, they're able to sit together and sort of like go together as a group and challenge um, certain, um, and say that I want to take up my issue. They are referred maybe to specific people handling violence against women. And um, some had not registered their marriages. So because they're coming to groups discussing about all these rights, actually knowing what it entails and what benefits they can get, they've been able to register their, um, their marriages so that they can be able to benefit from the existing laws. So thank you very much for being patient and listening. Thank you. Okay, so now we will hear from Zoe Carlitai um, with uh, World, Associ World Association of Girl Guides and Girl Scouts. Okay. Hi, everybody. I should have taken my jacket off because it's really hot, but the outfit was really cute, and now I really regret it. Um, so I'm trying not to fan myself while I speak. Um, so thanks, everyone, ODI, and to everyone for being here. I know it's the end of a really long week, and we'd probably rather be in Times Square right now, but this is really important stuff that we need to talk about, so I really appreciate your time. So my name is Zoe. I'm the Europort Manager from the World Association of Girl Guides and Girl Scouts. And as the world's leading volunteer movement for any girl and every girl, we support 10 million girl, girls and young women from across 150 countries in all regions of the world to develop their leadership skills and drive the changes they want to see in their lives, communities and countries. So, a big task. <laughs> um, a large focus of our work is therefore to address underlying norms and stereotypes about gender. And our flagship programs, Stop the Violence and Free Being Me, tackle gender-based violence and harassment, as well as low self-esteem and body confidence. We work with girls and young women, as well as men and boys, to recognize and release the shame or self-blame that girls often internalize from their societies where to even talk about these issues is considered taboo, or where a woman's reputation is considered more valuable than her rights or even her life, as some of us know. So the project I would like to spotlight today is Europort. Europort uh, is a social messaging platform that allows anyone from anywhere to speak out and be heard on issues they care about, as per the slide. <laughs> it's designed by UNICEF's Global Innovation Center and rolled out by WAGS, and it uses end-to-end -end encryption and ironclad child and data protection systems to invite young people to safely participate in polls. 
This platform is hosted on Facebook, Twitter, Viber, and has its own app, and it runs through mobile phones. Currently, there are almost 5 million new reporters um, running on a global platform, as well as in 40 dedicated country projects. And in these instances, in different countries around the world, those polls run via SMS, so that removes the need for smart technology or data packages that could limit some users' access. Um, and new report is accessible for young people aged 13 and up. The data that is collected is disaggregated by age, sex, and location, and is available to view in live time on the U Report website. And we design all of our polls in um, partnership with the girls themselves, according to our girl-led methodology of how we work. So for the last year and a half, we've kind of been on our pilot phase of the work. And largely what we've been doing is awareness raising, and we really want to move that in towards genuine kind of advocacy and taking initiatives. So we're beginning to work in different countries around the world to design national level campaigns specifically around our flagship issue of ending violence against women and girls, uh, to generate data and to lobby decision makers to make the changes that the girls and young women from those countries have identified as necessary. So in every poll that we've run, um, we've heard from girls that gender stereotypes and harmful norms are holding them back. Not a surprise to anyone in this room. This week at CSW, our 11 youth delegates have spoken out on this same issue in different spaces, you may have seen them. And whether they've been speaking about access to nutrition, services for survivors of violence, girls' education or body confidence, they have argued time and time again that <coughs> girls are not prioritized and they're often forgotten even in conversations about women. Girls eat last in the family, girls miss out on school more than their brothers, and girls' needs, dreams, aspirations come last, if ever. So we use U-Report both as to collect our data and as justification for our arguments, campaign, and lobbying. Just want to share a few examples of what we've learned from it in this last 18 months. In a poll we ran on SDG 5, um, presented at the 2017 ECOSOC Youth Forum, we asked young people if they thought forcing a woman or girl to have sex was ever justified. And almost one third of the 4,000 young people we asked said yes or sometimes. Yeah. So this suggests to me that whatever work governments are doing to address gender inequality, it is not yet reaching young people's perceptions. And it seems obvious, but how can we realistically expect to see change when data like this highlights disturbingly that, in my mind, young people are confusing rape and love. In a world where 84% of the young people we asked told us they believed violence against women and girls was increasing, it seems that the work we're all doing to address these entrenched norms must really be prioritized. Um, in a similar poll we ran last CSW, 64% of the girls we asked told us they had seen a man get angry or violent when a woman earned her own money as it threatened his sense of masculinity. So it's very easy for us to make this analysis about how these norms influence perceptions and behavior. <coughs> In our latest poll for this CSW, we asked you reporters to share why they believed girls and women don't always have the same access to opportunities or services as men and boys. An unacceptable 20% of more than 100,000 young people told us they thought women and girls don't believe they deserve the same chances. I mean, if anything, this really reveals where we need to start addressing our work. Outcomes such as this, shared directly with young people and profiled by WAGs and to UN agencies, governments, local decision makers, really reveal the significance of addressing harmful gender norms 
as absolutely integral to any genuine hope of challenging or overcoming gender inequality. Um, I want to add that in our line of work, we do occasionally come across projects or theoretical frameworks that employ a quite a linear traditional approach to development that seeks to individualize or kind of harness the untapped resource that is sometimes seen as girls. And we think these narratives that promote this kind of economic liberalism, every girl, her own capitalist, um, really risk putting the responsibility to change all of this on girls alone. Without addressing structural inequalities, including a lack of strong legislation or commitment by governments to implement, or re-education around harmful norms, girls, young women, and the feminist movement are going to continue doing more than their fair share of the work. We think it's the primary responsibility for governments and key decision makers to uphold the rights of all girls and women, regardless of where they come from, and we've been calling on them in spaces like CSW and with our peers and colleagues such as yourselves to really encourage governments and decision makers to consult girls and young women in absolutely everything that affects them, especially in the monitoring review of the SDG implementation process. I really just want to end by saying, um, with tools and the, uh, the spotlight projects that we've heard from today from my colleagues on the panel, I think we're starting to realize more than ever um, how harmful these, uh, the impact of reductive gender norms are, as we have more tools to actually gather <coughs> them, do the analysis and synthesis, and present those outcomes. So the urgency to address them in our collective effort <coughs> to gen end gender inequality is just fantastically obvious and been made aware of brilliantly by everyone on this panel. So I want to thank you all for that chance to do that. And I need to leave um, quite early. I'm really sorry. I now have a side event, and I have to casually ask our donor for more money. Um, so I'm going to have to go <laughs> quite soon. Um, but I've left some cards on the table, and you're welcome to contact me via these wonderful guys at ODI with any more questions, unless you wanted to do them now. Okay, I've got to go. Thank you for the time. <laughs> Thank you so
uh, just very quickly, um, thank you to all our panelists, but I also just wanted to point out some of the people in the room that you may want to speak to um, on a line and also on gauge. Um, Rachel George, who is here, you may have heard from her. She, and if you email a line, Rachel may well be the person who replies to you. She's organized this event, so a huge thanks to her. Um, but if you want to speak to her, then now's your opportunity. Um, also, Katie Harris, who's uh, communications. We have a communications team also in London who are helping us on the Align platform. Um, I also wanted to point out Muriel Kahane and Alex Cunningham, who are both working on the GAGE pro project. That's the global, the Gender and Adolescence Global Evidence Project, which is a longitudinal study uh, running for nine years, uh, looking at what improves the lives of adolescent mm -hmm. girls, um, especially looking at their capabilities, and norms is at the centre of that. So do watch that website. WorkNay is obviously working with us on that in Ethiopia, and it works in a number of other countries, and um, please keep an eye on that website in terms of norm change. We'll be linking that also to the Align platform. So um, really a big thanks to all these people, um, and also to Patty for chairing the event, and all the panellists. Um, I think we have an opportunity now to, um, for you to have more in-depth conversation with our panelists about their projects and norm change, and any of the other people in the room that you want to talk to. I'm going to hand over to Katie or Rachel to explain how that's going to happen. Thanks, Caroline, and thanks everyone for being here. As Patty mentioned, we were really hoping, I know we're a bit short on time, um, but really to make this as uh, sort of informal and uh, discussion-based and, uh, you know, you can engage in networking and just learning from one another. Um, so what we're going to do is um, bear with us while we sort of help uh, place our speakers around the room. Um, and then do feel free to sort of fluidly move between them or, or approach any of us, as Caroline mentioned. So if you just give us uh, 30 seconds as <coughs> we get organized. Yes, is that a question? Yes. Can I just ask a general question? Okay, yeah. Uh, thank you very much for, for all the inspiring statements. My question is on the topic, why do you prefer using gender justice instead of gender equality? Because whatever the speakers were telling us about was equality policies. And no, that's a great question. I think we're going to have to break into the discussion, if that's oh, all right. Okay. But we'll, we'll, come, we'll come speak to you, please do, because I think it's an important point um, to touch on. Okay, thank you. But this is, this is very important, because equality, women's moment and feminist moment has been you know, working for so many years on equality. And you're talking about equality. So what made you change that you know, topic? To, because when we're talking about justice, we are talking about the justice is depends on the policies of the government. Yeah, let's, we are so short on time. We'll, okay, we'll discuss sorry. with you now. Thank you for raising it. So um, go ahead. I know I, I, if people have to leave, that's fine. We're just going to get organized and um, come approach us. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.